backwards to the realities of the third world. We take a raw and real look into the challenges and the pursuits of social justice. Welcome to The Point. Today's guest is Rachel Goebel. Rachel grew up in an interconnected and multicultural world. Whether traveling to Central America with her family to survey land for the founding of a nonprofit or trudging through the Sierra Nevadas as her parents sought to awaken Christians to our new role as creation's caretakers, Rachel learned early on that the world's people and problems are connected and that we must all help in overcoming them. After getting her undergrad in business economics and her master's in cross-cultural studies, Rachel founded The Freedom Story to prevent child trafficking in Northern Thailand through education, resources, and mentorship. After developing close relationships with the children that The Freedom Story serves, Rachel founded Ethical Storytelling, a community of nonprofit practitioners and storytellers learning how to integrate a new standard of storytelling. Today, Rachel serves as the CEO of The Freedom Story and Executive Director of the Global Family Foundation. She's here with us today to talk about her journey and share with us her personal story of where she's been and where she's going next. Please join me in welcoming to the show, Rachel Goebel. Thank you, Rachel, for taking the time to meet with me today. You are joining us from the Oakland area of California, while the rest of the United States is currently under snow advisories. So I'm in Florida, so we're glad to be warm for now. So I'd love to just start at the beginning. I think a lot of times um, we have an idea that people who are in this line of work had this like magical childhood where they were like exploring through jungles, you know, with their, you know, at four years old and learning, you know, 12 languages, but it, but it seems like you actually did have a pretty interesting childhood. So I'd love to hear all about that. (laughs) I love that you describe it as a magical childhood, exploring jungles and learning 12 languages. I don't know if that was entirely Um, what it looked like, but my parents were very adventurous and did care a lot about the environment. Um, I grew up in a, in a Christian household and it was back in the day where Christians and environmentalists, uh, despised one another. And my parents, um, kind of surprisingly actually found their kind of calling in that space of realizing that Christians, um, have a huge responsibility towards creation care. And so the organization that they started, um, it was called Target Earth International. I was actually operating in 27 countries around the world at one point, but mm-hmm. our kind of flagship headquarter was in Belize where they built, and this was what kind of informed a lot of my childhood. Um, they built a research and educational facility in the middle of the rainforest, um, as well as partnered with the Belize Audubon Society to actually buy up and preserve the rainforest land. Um, and so to this day, we still own nearly 2000 acres of rainforest um, that are in preservation. And that research and education facility now runs as a social enterprise hotel. Um, so we host guests from all over the world um, and the funds from that continue to go back to support local education initiatives. Um, We partner with different nonprofits um, for jobs and job training, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so all of that to say, I think my parents 
desire to um, kind of swim upstream and go against the current a little bit um, and to find um, this, this intersection between their faith and creation care in a world that was telling them otherwise um, really did inform a lot of my uh, care, passion, desire um, to understand and work with um, vulnerable populations um, to kind of see the intersection points between things like creation care and food sustainability or healthcare, and started to think at a young age process um, what you know those different intersection points are in justice issues and kind of just what my own um, privileged life as a as a young child and teenager meant um, within that within that context in education as well. Yeah, that, that's incredible. I haven't heard that term before, creation care. So I'm definitely uh, loving that. I'm going to use that in my vocabulary. So while, while all this was happening, were you like physically living in these other countries? Were you getting homeschooled? Like what did, what did that look like? No, I was not. So I grew up in the Bay Area and my parents actually, well, family, I should say, um, my grandfather started our family business, which is commercial real estate. And so I always joke that my life felt um, like I had a foot in both worlds where, you know, we would fly. I don't know if I'm going to want you to include this, but I'll say it. This is where judgment ensues. Um, but we would literally fly, fly first class to go sleep on jungle floors. And no, no, I love that. <laughs> because, no, like, and we can unpack that, but I think you like, even that's that's powerful though that's powerful okay continue <laughs> um but yeah so so no i was i was living in the bay area and we would travel uh especially down to belize quite a bit um but only over you know holidays summers things like that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so you were just in the public school system and you were like just living what like a average kind of american kid life but also had this yep whole other perspective of what was going on. So after public school, you decided to attend college and end up getting your undergrad in business and economics and a master's in cross-cultural studies. We might look at that and think the two are not related. So tell us a bit about what led you to pursuing both business and humanitarian studies. Yeah, good question. Um, so undergrad, I, I thought I would work with our family business, which is commercial real estate okay. and didn't at that point, um, necessarily think I would go into the nonprofit space, uh, rather the flip of it. I thought that, you know, if I could go into the business sector, um, I was kind of last grandchild standing, uh, for, for working within the family business. Um, that my dad at that point had been apprenticing under my grandfather for quite some time. And still runs it to this day. Um, and so I thought that that was my trajectory. And after undergrad, I uh, took some time and worked a few different jobs as I think most, you know, recent graduates that aren't entirely clear on what they want to do, do. Uh, and that included some work working with youth at a church. Um, I did marketing for a large conference. I still worked with the family business. If you have a family business, you're kind of always working in it. Um, to some degree. And during that time, realized that I was 
um, surrounded by a family that would support me to take risks and uh, to really kind of dream beyond just what was in front of me and realized that I had a huge passion to work with youth and uh, didn't really quite know what that meant at that time. Um, but this program that I ended up enrolling in for my master's degree, uh, cross-cultural studies, they had actually just started a specific area of focus called working with children at risk. Hmm. And that seemed, um, of interest to me. And so I applied, um, ended up about a year later, moving down to LA and most of my kind of exposure during that time was within uh, the various nonprofits that I had worked with in Los Angeles. Um, but that was when I first heard about human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so this was back in 2006, I believe, 2006, 2007. Uh, so it was a fairly new-ish term. Um, and people were, you know, I think just starting to kind of gain awareness about what it is um, and what that what it means and how it's happening in our world. And so like many other people, I was, you know, surprised, horrified, um, wanted to learn more and happened to be in a master's program that allowed me to research um, with with quite a bit of flexibility. And so decided to, at that point, start learning more about what human trafficking was and is. Let's um, unpack a little bit about human trafficking and can you give us some like definition to that vocabulary and maybe even, you know, in 2006, the way it was described then, is it still the same now or has there kind of been an evolution within that as well? Yeah, good question. It's a big question. Uh, So human trafficking is forest fraud or coercion of a person into a situation of exploitation. And I think the two exploitation um, terms that we are most familiar with are sexual and labor. And when you talk about kind of how that definition has evolved over the years, one of the things that I have seen and really been incredibly encouraged by is that as countries continue to ratify to the UN protocol and definition of what trafficking is, we've actually added on to the types of trafficking. And so if you look at kind of the statistics or the data reporting from 2001, uh, when it was first defined until now in 2021, Early on, you would see a pie chart that had two sections and it would be labor and sex. Mm-hmm. And now that pie chart has been broken down into, I couldn't even tell you how many, probably dozens um, of different types of trafficking. And that all came about because countries began to really own what that definition was and is, and then continue to add on to it. And mm-hmm. so you might see things now like um, uh, organ trafficking, um, child, child brides, and the list goes on and on. And so that's definitely one area in which we've seen a huge transformation and growth really, um, in the terminology. Wow. It was really an incredible experience and how interesting to really be at the forefront of it when it was becoming more well-known and then to really see it evolve into where it's at today and the different education and prevention we have. So you're exposed to this new area of social justice being human trafficking. So was this a time when you decided to get involved or did it happen during your college career? So it actually happened during and 
so what happened was that I, part of the program I was in had a capstone project, essentially a thesis. Okay. And I decided to partner with an organization called Oasis, who also had an office in LA that I had been doing some volunteer work with. And then they had offices all over the world. Uh, and so I applied to go uh, essentially apprentice with them uh, at their India offices and their South Africa offices. And so I was in India for about two months, South Africa for about one, um, very short time, but tons of learnings <laughs> happened during that time. Um, and the goal of it was to come out with a research piece at the end. And so I spent my time working primarily with different NGO leaders and um, the organization that I was with continued to refer me to other organizations. And all of that to say, I came home from this three months of learning and asking questions and interviewing people uh, with a, a big glaring issue. And that was the area um, where there was such a, let me rephrase that with this big glaring issue that there was a giant service gap in the area of prevention. And so all the organizations I talked to, um, the survivors I talked to, um, those that were still in the life that I talked to, all of them at different points would reference this concept of prevention, sometimes naming it as prevention and other times saying, you know, things like, I wish I could go back to my community and warn people about what happened to me. Uh, and at the end of the day, what I learned was that organizations were already at such max capacity um, with focusing on rescue and aftercare that there was such little bandwidth or funding to go actually into the prevention side of it. And so I came out of that trip really feeling called to what does prevention look like? I want to wrestle with this and I want to explore this. And I think that that might be where my skill sets can really aid in this uh, fight against trafficking. And so I met at that point, um, a friend of a friend of a friend kind of situation connected us. And I met Rachel Sparks, okay. uh, who was the producer of a documentary called The Sold Project. And she was filming in Thailand uh, and had had kind of a similar experience where she went to create this documentary about child sex trafficking and actually came out of her first round of filming saying, I think we need to tell the story of prevention. And so we partnered and I went to Thailand with her um, and we met with a man named Tawi Donchai, uh, who also had a really similar uh, dream to start a prevention program in his community. And all of this was technically while I was still in school. <laughs> um, and we ended up kind of long story short saying, let's finish this documentary and tell this story of a young girl um, that inspires hope of prevention and start a nonprofit to support her peers um, mm. that are vulnerable and at risk. And so we did. And, I, you know, you and I talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but just the profound naivety of that moment still sits with me. Mm. Um, and what we had no idea, what none of us knew what we were doing. Um, and now 13 years later, you know, we've learned so much mm. um, and the programs have um, continue to expand and grown and we've seen lives truly be changed. But I go back to 13 years ago and um, almost laugh at myself. And in many ways, I'm, I'm grateful for that naivety because I don't know if everyone would start a nonprofit if you knew what you were getting into. Um, but also I uh, have learned, have so many lessons learned. 
Yeah, I think you're exactly right. There's almost this balance between the naivety of our our youth or our beginning of the nonprofit world and really um, hoping that we are not hurting more than we're helping and, and where can we like meet in that knowledge to really pursue our end goal. So you went overseas, you made this video and you had this impactful time. So so tell us more about where this video is at today. Is it something that we can see? Is it still available online? So the video is in and of itself kind of a, a, a big lesson learned. Um, <laughs> I talked about lessons learned, right? And when we were filming, um, there were a lot of mistakes that were made. And in that film, it's a beautiful film. Um, we highlight the story of a young girl named Kat um, and some of her family members. And we show her risk, um, but we also show her resiliency. Uh, but we never put the film online because it did share really personal details about Kat's life. And when she turned 18, um, I went to her and I said, you're an adult now. And would you like your film to be online? And she actually said, no. And there is a film that we made uh, that is online about why Kat does not want her film online. And that film is incredibly powerful. And I will say one little glimpse into it that has always stayed with me is she actually says in this little interview or chat that she and I had um, that she didn't want to be remembered in that way. And that that was, you know, who she was when she was nine years old. Um, now, She's in her 20s. She's about to graduate from university and she's come so far in her life and she didn't want to be remembered in the way that she was depicted in that film. That sounds incredibly educational. Where can we find it? So the Freedom Story is Vimeo page. It's just vimeo.com slash the Freedom Story. Kat's story is definitely impactful. I know a lot of us have stories that stick with us and help us to remember why we do what we do. Is, is that the story for you? Good question. I, it is Kat's story, 100%. Um, and part of that is because of the relationship that Kat and I have. Mm -hmm. There, I'm sure, you know, I, I could share with you so many, like, very formative stories of people that I've met um, who have either, you know, persuaded my, um, how do I want to say this? I think persuaded my thinking in a certain direction or even my ethos in a certain direction. But because Kat and I have such a deep relationship, um, when I think about why I do what I do, it always comes back to her. Um, so obviously I've known Kat since she was nine. Uh, now she's in her 20s. She's come and lived with me for summers here in the States. Uh, and we keep in touch really regularly, um, still even through COVID. <laughs> um, and and she's, she's thriving. You know, she has experienced an incredible amount of hardship in her life, and yet she is wise and brilliant um, and so brave and truly thriving uh, in, in life. And so when I think about why I do what I do, um, it comes back to, to Kat for sure. So earlier you touched on the internal growth we have, not just within ourselves, but how we interact in the humanitarian role. For example, if we knew then what we know now, we would have done a lot of things differently. What is that for you? What's something you'd want to say to your younger self? 
one of the things I'm so incredibly grateful for from my time at Fuller uh, was a specific professor. His name is Bryant Myers. Um, his book, Walking with the Poor, is absolutely incredible. Um, if people haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Uh, but he really did what I just, <laughs> I always used to tease him and I would say, you know, you're really, really beating the God complexes out of us. And what I mean when I say that is in the humanitarian space, um, there's a lot of colonizing that happens. There's a lot of power dynamics. And a lot of that historically and currently comes from the Western world um, having a false God complex and bringing that to, you know, the quote unquote developing world. Um, and that could and I say quote unquote, because it doesn't even have to be international. Um, it can happen in your own backyard. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think that there is this God complex that we carry and oftentimes are unaware of. And so recognizing that I think going into my work was both a gift um, and also it has been something I have struggled with and wrestled with the entirety of my time in the, in the nonprofit space. And, uh, so what I think that has led to are conversations, lots of conversations about my own failings. Um, a lot of kind of repenting of both my own shortcomings, as well as the long history, uh, of colonization. And, the, and I, we, when we think about colonization, a lot of times we, we don't necessarily associate that to the nonprofit space, um, but it absolutely is connected. And so I think, yeah, and, and all that to say, I mean, I could go on about this topic for a while, but I don't know how much we want to get into it. Um, but it has definitely contributed to now the ethical storytelling movement that I'm a part of um, and looking at how nonprofits tell story and the power dynamics that are present in there. Yeah, let's move into that more. So you have a few projects going on. You have um, the Freedom Story, which we've talked briefly about. And then tell us more about um, the ethical storytelling community. Yeah, so ethical storytelling was born out of the recognition that nonprofits have accountability to things like finances, board, uh, but no accountability to storytelling and marketing. And we were beginning in the anti-trafficking space to notice that a lot of the storytelling that was coming out in the form of either social media or video or blog posts uh, was sometimes incredibly re-exploitative and was actually going against uh, the mission of the organization mm -hmm. or against the kind of movement's progress. Mm -hmm. and would tell stories that were very sensational or stories that perhaps continued to further stereotypes and stigma rather than to humanize or show resiliency or show overcoming or educate about how, you know, trafficking trends have changed or things like that. Mm -hmm. And those of us in the movement were kind of starting to wonder how harmful actually is this um, to not only the people whose stories are being shared, but to the movement as a whole. And so we started having conversations and wrestling with it and ethical storytelling was born out of, let's create a space where not just anti-trafficking organizations, but all organizations can come together to talk about flipping the power dynamics that are present in our stories that we share. Mm -hmm. 
Mm -hmm. um, and so now we act as a resource page essentially um, for organizations that want to strengthen their storytelling practices. That's great. So if somebody's listening today and they have a nonprofit, how, how would they interact with you or with the ethical storytelling platform? Yeah. So we have a, a website that's dedicated to being a, a, play, a library, essentially, of, of some of those resources. Um, we also have a podcast. And our most recent series was actually on power dynamics. Um, absolutely incredible. Highly recommend it. Uh, we got to interview Lisa Sharon Harper and actually broke her oh, wow. interview into three parts um, because it was so powerful. Mm. Uh, but there's tons of great resources and different themes that we engage with um, on the on the podcast. And so there's, you know, if you're a photographer or a filmmaker, um, there's a, a series dedicated to that. Um, obviously, Power Dynamics, kind of NGO 101 things like that. And um, then we also have a pledge that people can print out, sign, um, put at your desk, ask your organization to, to sign as well. And um, that is a pledge of ethical storytelling. Very cool. I love that. Um, and I'll make sure to put all of those links in the show notes as well. I've listened to um, quite a few episodes of the podcast and it's really, really powerful stuff. And I know it can take a long time uh, to research and to talk about issues that can be really complex and also, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of touchy and like it can, it can be a lot to digest and, and unpack. So I appreciate um, all y'all and the time that you guys have put into making that happen and that resource. I know it's a new conversation that's starting to happen in the nonprofit world. Are there other people out there who are also continuing this conversation? Yeah, there are. Um, there are other people having the conversation for sure. What we found was that there wasn't necessarily a centralized place to gather that information. And so what we've tried to do is pull those people uh, and their resources onto the ethical storytelling website to make them more widely distributed, mm -hmm. essentially. Um, but yeah, a couple that come to mind, um, Esther Havens obviously has, I don't know if people are familiar with her work, but her photography is beautiful. Um, and she's been talking about ethical storytelling for a really long time um, through her photography. Um, How Matters is a really great website that's also full of lots of resources. Um, they were connected to Thousand Currents for a while, which is a, um, a foundation that's actually here in Oakland. Um, and so there are definitely people that are talking about it. Um, but what we try to do with the website is to bring those people together. Um, and so the whole ethical storytelling movement is all curated by volunteers. Um, it, it's nestled under the 501c3 umbrella of the freedom story, um, but it uh, is all curated by, by volunteers. No one's benefiting from it. Um, I think we have about $200 in our bank account. <laughs> like, like every nonprofit. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and so right now it's, it truly is a passion project. I love that. So you are a busy woman. So you're the CEO of Free the Freedom Story, the executive director of the Global Family Foundation. Um, you're obviously incredibly involved in ethical storytelling. And then you also have something called the Jaguar Creek. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Jaguar Creek is the eco lodge that is in the middle of the rainforest in Belize. Um, it's the facility that uh, the nonprofit my parents started built when I was 
gosh, probably 11. And now we're running it as an eco lodge. Um, and so anyone can come and stay. Um, and when you stay with us, uh, not only are you continuing to you know, preserve the rainforest that's around it, um, but we're also partnering with Pathlight International, uh, which is an education uh, nonprofit in Belize um, to support their work, um, provide employment to their graduated students uh, and proceeds from the um, from Jaguar Creek continue to be invested back into Jaguar Creek or distributed to local charity partners. Very cool. And how long have you been involved in that? On and off since I was 10. Wow, that's great. <laughs> See, you, were, you were trudging through the jungles, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, most, most recently in the last couple of years, we actually flipped it into uh, an income producing facility um, before it was um, under a nonprofit umbrella. And so in its, in its recent years, has it um, flipped into more of a social enterprise model? And that was when I got reconnected with it again. Mm, very cool. Well, if um, if you're listening to this, make sure to follow it on Instagram. It is such a beautiful place. It makes you want to travel to Belize immediately. So mm-hmm. and please do because COVID yeah. has been difficult. <laughs> is Belize <laughs> currently open for for tourism? It is. Yeah. So and actually, they've done a really great job of navigating COVID. Um, so Belize was awarded uh, this a safe tourism destination. Um, which has been really helpful. And so we're starting to see people confidently travel again. Uh, I also think that, you know, places like Jaguar Creek um, that are open, um, even the cabanas are all open air. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's much safer than going to, um, you know, a building with elevators and where everything's inside. So um, it's a beautiful place to get outside and um, disconnect. We're completely uh, offline. Uh, there's no internet or cell phone service on the property. And so it's a good place to come um, disconnect and enjoy nature. I always like to ask, um, what's one thing that you want people to take with them from this conversation? But before I do that, I would just love to know what's next for you. You have so much going on. You're such an intelligent woman. So tell us, tell us what's in the works. Uh, you know, that is a great question. So COVID <laughs> has been interesting because it's actually forced me to slow down. And so my what's next have actually kind of pivoted from um, career and more into my garden. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so, um, I love that. and I, I truly, I think that, you know, not being able to get on a plane for the last 12 months um, has, has been such a forced slowdown. And so I have found so much joy in watching the seasons. Um, I planted an orchard and have expanded my chicken coop. And um, so kind of just getting back in touch, I think, with the, the, the practice of presence and um, just being reconnected with the earth in that way. Mm-hmm. And, and so once COVID lifts, I will very happily uh, reconnect with my teams in person because I miss them desperately. Um, but until that point, uh, I've really enjoyed kind of the slowness of, of finding my center again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think 
it, it's been interesting um, moving from, you know, the Caribbean where we island time where everything you're just forced to be, you know, we call it the Haitian mm-hmm. sit, where you just sit, you just sit yes. and you interact with each other or you don't, but there's community around all the time. And it's really uh, relational and also really introspective. So it's been um fun maybe even though it's a very painful experience sometimes we forced into that um mm-hmm. like you're making the best of it trying <laughs> maybe we all, we're all trying right <laughs> trying, yes. <laughs> well, we covered a lot of topics today rachel what is one thing though that you would want listeners to take with them today that's such a, a big question and i think if there is one thing i wanted i would want people to leave with today it would be that people are so much more than the stories that you watch, the stereotypes that you hear. And when you're engaging in a justice issue, a humanitarian issue, um, be aware, I think, of how easy it is to boil a person down um, to a single narrative or a single stigma. And I know for myself, um, I would hope that those around me would know me for more than my best or my worst moments. Um, And I think that it's an exercise in respecting and hearing one another's stories um, to remember that people are so much more nuanced um, than what can be seen as wrapped up in a nice, pretty bow. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of at the core of my ethical storytelling belief um, and part of that is how we choose to consume them as well. That's that's incredible. And I hope that um, the people listening today can be inspired by that. So thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate thank you. It. And I look forward to um, receiving some fruits and vegetables in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> I'll send you my uh, next round of jam. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Blast it was to talk with Rachel. I'm going to throw her links at you now. She can be found on Instagram at The Freedom Story, at Jaguar Creek, at Ethical Storytelling, and at Rachel Goble, G O B L E. She's also on Twitter as Ray Goble. And as always, all relevant links can be found on show notes at lapointfoundation.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep on fighting for justice.